0: Welcome to Strange for History, the podcast where we talk about, you guessed it, strange history. This is an older episode, recorded and produced before the podcast started to get attention, before editing was done to episodes, before I had a good feeling for how an episode of Strange for History needed to sound, and before our rebranding to Strange for History. These old episodes are not for the faint of heart. There's a lot of stuff here that I'm really not proud of, like audio glitches, bad dialogue, poor editing, and segments that needed to be dropped, like the interviews, or like the rapid-fire history facts. While you're welcome to start and listen from here, I would recommend that you fast-forward to Episode 12, Spanish Civil War, instead. Either here or there, I hope you enjoy this journey that we will take together as we explore many of the things that make us, us. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this little podcast. And even if you do not continue past here, I do so very much appreciate you and your time. Episode 8 Shimmer and Shine. In the 1850s, the Virginia General Assembly began to realize that there was a massive influx of the mentally ill at the Eastern State Hospital, located in Williamsburg, and the Western State Hospital in Stanton. The Virginia government would create a task force or committee to find a suitable location for a third asylum somewhere to the west of the Allegheny Mountain Range. This committee would tour through several small frontier towns through the westernmost regions of the state visiting, among others, Fayetteville in Fayette County, Weston in Lewis County, and Sutton in Braxton County. Fayetteville, near the New River, held an abundance of natural resources and water access, although the New River was not suitable for long-term or long-distance travel. Up next, of course, would be Sutton. Sutton, settled just a few years prior in 1835, was already a major trade and travel hub sitting on the Elk River, providing water access, as well as being attached to the Stanton and Parkersburg Turnpike and the James River and Kanawha Turnpike. Sutton was also easily accessible by road. The addition of a major rail line in 1853 would further reinforce this as the prime location for this new asylum. However, they still had to impress the committee, who found Sutton to be rather lackluster and unwelcoming, preferring to focus on its coal and timber industries and not being interested in being the new home of a brand new state hospital. And so, the committee moved on to Weston. Here is where the committee found the location they so desperately wanted. The small town of less than 900 people knew that this facility would bring a change of life and new opportunities to the small frontier town. And they worked very hard to impress this committee. They repainted the buildings, cleaned the streets, and even welcomed the group with pomp and circumstance, greeting them with a band as they arrived. City and county officials wined and dined the group, showing off the local area, the abundancy of natural resources, and so on. This, combined with the close proximity to the Staunton-Parkersburg Turnpike, the West Fork River, access to stone, lumber, coal, freshwater, and rolling fields finally paid off, and the committee was fully convinced to create the facility in the city of Weston. But our story today isn't about the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. It is not about the rise and fall of the Old Dame, the second largest hand-built sandstone building in the world. It isn't about the mentally ill, the treatments or the horrors of post-day modern mental health care. Our story today is about what we humans crave above all else, we who covet gold above all things. Our story is about a gold robbery orchestrated by the Union Army how this money would go on to lead to the creation of the 35th State of the Union. Our story is about the soldiers whose mission it was to take this gold, about the troops, and about how this small band of men went from being simply soldiers to a regiment that gained more lasting honor above all others. The first part of our story starts, of course, in the year 1858, when the construction of the asylum west of the Allegheny Mountains began. when a sum of $30,000 worth of Confederate gold was sent to a small bank called the Westgen Exchange. Money would be used for the construction of the facility and is on par to around a half a million dollars in today's currency. In 1861, the state of Virginia ordered construction halted, and for the money to be returned to Richmond to fuel the war effort. On April 27, 1861, Orders to form the next Ohio Rifle Group were issued. Independent groups from Camp Ty- Taylor in Cleveland, Ohio, were asked to come together for the formation of the new group. Urestis Tyler of Ravana was democratically elected as colonel. William Creighton of Cleveland was elected as a lieutenant colonel, and John Casement of Painesville would become the major. Another original member of the group was John Sproul of Sandusky, Ohio, who would later become a Medal of Honor winner while serving with the 63rd Ohio. On May 6th, the group marched to Camp Denison for training, and in mid-June, their three-month enlistment period had ended. Most of the men enlisted, re-enlisted, and the ranks were augmented with fresh recruits. Later, on June 30th, Colonel Urestis Tyler, the commanding officer of the newly formed 7th Ohio Volunteer Infantry Regiment, would be given marching orders by General George B. McKellen, passed down to him from Francis Pierpont, the governor of the Unionist Restored Government of Virginia, to rush to the city of Weston to collect this Confederate gold. Colonel Tyler and his troops removed around $27,000 at gunpoint and rushed the money back to the city of Wheeling, the northernmost city in the state, where it was quickly placed into the treasury building. This money helped to finance the state of West Virginia in its bare infancy, and one could make the logical argument that without the money being there in the first place, the state of West Virginia actually might not have been formed. Now, in July, the group would be ordered to relieve Fort Moore in Glenville. Fort Moore had taken a few rounds from Confederate scouts. However, by the time Colonel Tyler and the 7th Ohio had arrived whatever issue was there, had already been dealt with. They stayed for just about two days before being rerouted to Sutton in Braxton County, one county over. Fun random fact, my great-great-grandfather, Sida Hamilton Campbell, a captain in the Confederate Moccasin Rangers, would later burn and loot an undefended Fort Moore after a very, very brief skirmish in the city of Glenville in 1862. Upon arriving in Sutton, the 7th Ohio started to create basic fortifications, but were relocated again when they received marching orders to move into Nicholas County. With the success of the gold robbery in Weston and the safe return of the entire company, Tyler and his men were given their first combat mission during the Battle of Kessler's Cross Lanes up in Nicholas County. On August 26th, Brigadier General John Floyd, the commanding officer of the Confederate forces in the Kanawha Valley region, crossed the Gully River to attack Colonel Tyler's forces, who were camped out at Kessler's Cross Lanes. Surprised by the random appearance of 2,000 men, Double that of the Union force, the 7th Ohio, prepared for battle, and it absolutely did not go as planned. The Union forces were surprised and routed by the advancing Wall of Grey, forcing them to retreat and eventually abandon their positions. Two wings of Tyler's line would break formation and retreat in the opposite direction of the troops. Major Jack Casement, realizing the grave error his troops had made, immediately jumped to the head of the left-wing most wing of the retreat and ordered his troops a retrograde march through the Confederate lines, far, far behind enemy lines. They crossed a nearby mountain range, waded the Elk River at Clendenin, and marched onward towards Charleston, all without losing a single man along the way. Of the 1,000 fighting men of the 7th Ohio Infantry, 15 were killed in action, 20 were wounded, and 38 were captured. Damage done to Floyd's troops numbered at 40, no kills, or no wounds, and no captures. The next action seen by the 7th Ohio would occur during the First Battle of Kernstown, and it was then that the 7th Ohio showed their fangs, barred hard for the world to see. The Union troops were ag- up against a force of around 4,000 men under the command of the ever-famous General Stonewall Jackson. Defeat here was certain, as Stonewall had not yet been defeated in the field of battle. The 7th were ordered to march the gun batteries of Lieutenant Colonel Philip Down, as as he had entered an artillery battle with Confederate guns placed near Sandy Ridge. For the next three hours, the group were shelled but held positions. Only a few shells would overshoot the targets and slam into the lines of the 7th Ohio Infantry, whom had no means of escape. Despite the shelling and the thunder of guns, Colonel Tyler kept his position at the front of his men, mounted on his horse, completely unwavered. At 4 p.m., Tyler announced for his troops to ready bayonets. Orders came down for them to charge. One by one, the 7th Ohio slipped into a column formation with their bayonets affixed, and Tyler ordered the charge. The response from the Confederates was staggering a barrage of rifle and cannon fire ripped the 7th Ohio Infantry to shreds. This was the worst combat they had seen, and a historian later said that the single fire from the Rebel lines were some of the worst yet, and even terrified the veteran units deployed here. However, eventually, shouts of cross-lanes erupted from the 7th Ohio Infantry, with each man remembering their first incredibly embarrassing defeat, and with fangs and fire, they fought to the bitter end. Each man held his own, fighting as a one-man army. The battle here was so confusing that instead of directing fire, however, Union officers actually fought side-by-side with their troops, leading to the lines eventually collapsing due to the lack of leadership. As rebel reinforcements arrived, Tyler decided to rally his men and attempt to win the tactical advantage. However, due to the mass of entrenched troops, the 7th Ohio, 5th Ohio, and 1st West Virginia regiments were all forced back. Commanding officers Stonewall Jackson and Gimble, the Union CO, knew that if one of them survived the night, then the survivor would claim victory. Knowing this, an order was given. The 8th and 67th Ohio, 14th Indiana, and 84th Pennsylvania regiments were sent to reinforce Tyler, whom was sent back to the fray alongside the 7th. This massive group met and skirmished with the 1st and 2nd Virginia and Irish regiments and were repulsed, yet rallied almost instantly and pushed back against the rebels. Due to a tactical retreat by the defenders, the Union Army finally peeled away the first layers of the stone wall, and due to the actions of the relentless 7th Ohio Volunteer Infantry, the day was eventually won. Of the 590 Union deaths, 80 of them belonged to the 7th Ohio, However, one of their troops did manage to capture a member of Confederate High Command. The 7th would see constant combat after their first taste of blood, seeing action from Antietam to Gettysburg. After the Battle of Resca, the 7th Ohio's time in theater was up. Their three-year contract expired days before the arrival of William Tocuska Sherman in the Battle of Altoona. On June 8, 1864 the group was mustered out of service in Cleveland, Ohio, where the Fearless Group was formed three years prior in 1861. In its three years of service, 1,800 men had served, carrying their colors. Sixty new recruits were transferred to the veteran corps, and only 240 men marched home, carrying their flags, broken, bloodied, and shot by scores of shell. In total, the 7th Ohio lost only 10 officers, and 174 men to enemy action, and two officers and 87 men to sickness and disease. Several memorials stand to honor and sacri- stand to honor the sacrifice of the 7th Ohio. One stand in Gettysburg, at the lines held by the soldiers during the conflict. Today, the 7th Ohio is honored directly by the 145th Armored Regiment, Ohio National Guard. Soldiers whom continued to fight after the muster was over, joined up with the 5th Ohio, another direct relation to the 145th Armored Division. Colonel Eurestus Tyler himself would eventually find three of his four regiments mustered out, their terms of enlistment having expired. Left without an official field command, Tyler returned to Washington, D.C. to await further orders. In June of 1864, he was assigned command of the defenses of Baltimore, Maryland. He remained stationed there for the rest of the war and eventually married a local woman. He was in command of the 8th Corps from September 28, 1863 until October 10th, 1863, eventually being succeeded by a Robert Schneck. Now, by the time the war had ended, Tyler was included in an omnibus list of promotions to recognize Union officers for their gallant and meritorious service. He received the rank of major General. in August 24, 1865, he was finally mustered out of the army. Tyler and his wife would live in Baltimore after the war and there raise a family. He eventually rose to social prominence, serving a term as the city's postmaster. He would die in the, at the age of 68. It's buried in Baltimore's Greenmount Cemetery. The date of writing this episode was July 7th, which means we're going to have a very interesting event that I actually knew nothing about prior. It's called the Battle of Ontumba. Ontumba was a rather important battle during the Conquistador Period, The Spanish army, led by Hernan Cortes, numbered only around 500 men, reinforced by a few hundred local warriors. They were constantly besieged on their escape from Tenochtitlan, eventually making their way across the final causeway onto the plains of Untumba, where the conquistadors were met in a field of battle by a massive Aztec army, who numbered upwards of 20,000 men although the number sometimes does increase to 40,000 men, depending on the source. The military leader of the Aztec army decided the Spanish were already defeated, as they were outnumbered 60 to 1, if my math is correct, which I promise it is not. I'm a history major, not a math major. Despite the overwhelming size of the Aztec army, they did not attack right away, giving the exhausted, hungry, and tired Spanish troops time to reprieve before the battle began. Unfortunately, one thing the Aztec did not account for was the superiority of cavalry units during open-field warfare, and they had never encountered the Castilian cavalry. Thinking they were already defeated, the Aztecs decided to capture the enemy alive for sacrifices to appease their gods, giving the cavalry units time to produce a battle plan. The plan was incredibly simple. A full charge into the enemy lines. Repeatedly, Having never encountered horse-mounted sock troopers, the Aztecs panicked each time they charged, and the lines eventually broke due to a loss of morale. Cortez eventually identified the Aztec commander based on his adorned armor, headdress, and battle standard. Assuming that the loss of a command officer would force a rout, Cortes ordered his officers to charge with him, set on taking down the enemy general. Cortes, Santolva, Alvarado, Olid, Salamanca, and Deville broke off from the main force and charged the enemy lines. Cortes attacked the enemy leader with his lance, however it was Salamanca whom delivered the killing blow. He collected the fallen Aztec banner and returned it to Cortes. With the loss of the majority of their command lines, the Aztecs retreated, forcing themselves into a rout. This major victory would eventually lead to the overall submission of the Aztec Empire and their near-total extinction at the hands of the Spanish, as well as the establishment of New Spain. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Again, I do apologize for how long it's been taking me to get episodes released, and I'm going to try really, really, really hard to fix that. I do also understand that I absolutely butchered some of the names this episode, and I do apologize for that. Correct pronunciations would go a long way in helping me ply my craft a little bit better, so if you do know how to correctly pronounce some of the names, go ahead and just let me know what they are. I would really appreciate it. I also really appreciate you guys, and if you review the podcast on iTunes or on any other podcast site, that would really help me get the word out there. If you don't really feel like doing that, though, absolutely please share this with a friend. If you've got a history-loving nerd in your family or your friend circle, please send them my way, and I'll try to make them feel special. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of Strange for History. I hope you enjoyed learning about today's subject, and it was a lot of fun having you with Brad. Not me. (laughs) You'll have me if you start on episode 12. You can find this podcast on many different places, such as Facebook and Twitter. That's at Strange, the number four history, and on all major streaming sites as well, such as Google, Amazon, Spotify, Apple, um, even good pods, those indie ones, or really wherever your ears are listening. We at Strange for History appreciate your companionship and hope you continue to enjoy learning about those strange weird things that make us, us.